show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song, show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim, and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Illyri. And what are we serving today? I am not drinking alcohol today. Believe <gasps> it or not. I, I mean, I don't believe it, but convince me. Um, I've got a cup of tea. Why have you got a cup of tea? A cup of tea, because I would like to talk about the British royalty. Oh, hmm. the tea is royalty. By the way, I do enjoy your llama mug that you're presenting yeah. to me. No problema. Um, I've overcompensated for your lack of alcohol then, uh, because I'm <laughs> drinking a, a, a dry gin martini. Ooh. It's, it's all alcohol and nothing else. Nice. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. So I guess we thought that um, we should probably do something royal in homage to the times we are living in it's everywhere mm-hmm. we might as well do something yeah. um do you want to start sure because um we did actually talk about some warrants royal warrants was it in the last podcast or the one before yeah we did we did start talking about royal warrants <clears throat> so um i'll start with that really because mm-hmm. i was interested in that when we finished the last recording and i wanted to know more so i been looking into royal warrants. Uh, so yeah, a royal warrant of appointment is granted as a mark of recognition to people or companies who have regularly supplied goods or services to HM the Queen, HRH the Duke of Edinburgh, or HRH the Prince of Wales, or their households. Obviously this is probably out of date now because it's now the King. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, anyone who supplies goods to the King, um, and the, whole, the households and the Prince of Wales, Princess of Wales, etc. Um, goods purchased for resale by souvenir shops run by the Royal Collection Enterprises and the private estates, and goods or services provided to the Crown Estate, historic royal, historic royal palaces, and royal parks do not qualify, believe it or not. So stuff mm. that you'd buy, um, say if you went to Buckingham Palace and or if you went to somewhere like Highgrove you can go and get souvenirs in the shops there but they have not been given the royal warrant of appointment so it's any old shit (laughs) (laughs) so you're telling me when I go to that vendor on the uh, corner of Pall Mall they haven't been officially endorsed for that foam kind of queen face don't believe what they tell you they don't right the only person that can decide who gets the royal warrant is the monarch. So, obviously, the monarch decides who gets the royal warrants, but you can also... The, the monarch can can give somebody um, the title as being a grantor as well, so they can also um, allow for royal warrants to be put in place. Um, so, up until the Queen passed away, it was only the Queen and the Prince of Wales who could grant royal warrants. Um, but it'll be up to Charles to decide who would the kind of new granters will be or whether it'll just be him. Um, I did mention in the last podcast, so anyone who's currently got a royal warrant, they 
they have effectively now been voided, but I think they have two years to reapply or get them reinstated. So it'll be interesting to see if anybody loses them. Like I said, yeah. if, if Charles doesn't particularly like anything that had been given the warrant by his mum, perhaps not. I'm going to actually come on to that later in my section. There are a few things that he did influence. I'll come to it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there are currently over 800 royal warrant holders. Um, they represent a huge cross-section of trade and industry. Um, so it's not just food and drink. It can be individual craftspeople to multinationals, ranging from dry cleaners, fishmongers, agricultural machinery, computer software, anything. There's no requirement for the company to be British or UK-based. <clears throat> Um, also, warrant holding firms do not provide their goods or services for free to the royal households. All transactions are conducted on a strictly commercial basis. Mm-hmm. So no freebies and no bribes. You would think um, that would be the main perk of doing that, <clears throat> wouldn't you, as a royal? Like, I'll give you my stamp of approval if you give me loads of freebies. They're not, <laughs> I mean, so what I you're saying that. is, they're not influencers. <laughs> Apparently not. But... Um, in the past, a lot of people have sent, like, particularly whiskey, they've just sent barrels of it to the royals to try and get a warrant, but they were not granted. They didn't They didn't then go and upload <laughs> Charles Hasht- Tastes Whiskey yeah. reaction video. Hashtag ad. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag gifted. <laughs> uh, so, royal warrants. They are initially granted for up to five years to a named individual at a company known as the Grantee. An official royal warrant display document is sent to the grantee, which provides evidence of the authority to use the royal arms. Um, That gives the warrant holder nothing more than a right to display the royal arms. They're not entitled to claim or imply any exclusivity of supply. When a company displays that royal arms in relation to their business, the coat of arms must always be accompanied by the legend. The legend provides the details of which member of the royal family is granted the warrant, the company name, the nature of the goods or services provided, and the head office and address of the company. Uh, There are rules on how it can be displayed on products, stationery, advertisements, other printed material, and on delivery vehicles. Um, All royal warrants are reviewed by the Royal Household Warrants Committee in the year before they're due to expire, so that a decision can be made as to whether or not it should be renewed for another period of five years. So how do you get one? So as I said, you have to um, supply products or services on a regular and ongoing basis to the royal households for not less than five years out of the past seven. Uh, Amongst other things, applicants are also required to demonstrate that they have an appropriate environmental and sustainability policy and action plan. I can actually vouch for that because I did meet Charles a few years ago. And he asked me, oh, what do you do? And I told mm-hmm. him I work for a bottled water company. And straight away, he started talking to me about plastic. Of course he did. He <laughs> loves that thought, stuff. Oh, I don't want to get in an argument with you about plastic. So I just smiled and nodded. And was like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> we'll stop I using think, it. <laughs> I think you should have. I think it would have been fun. You would have him down. Oh, yeah. Absolutely schooled King Charles on plastic. Yeah. Either that or got your head chopped off. One of the two. <laughs> Did you not try to um, get a royal warrant for your famous Prosecco as well? Oh, I should have, shouldn't I? Yeah. Should have been like, Charles, you'll never have tasted anything like this. It deserves a it royal warrant. It is unique. 
Um, so let's get on to the fun bit. Who's got one? Who's got a royal warrant? Obviously, I'm not going to go through all 800 of them. <laughs> I <laughs> No, no. My <laughs> my editing skills are not up to that challenge. <laughs> I uh, I only went through the booze ones. The, the drinks and the booze ones. Because that's all we care about on this podcast. So, mm-hmm. first up. We've already spoken about it. Angostura bitters. They have mm-hmm. their warrant. Um, Sandringham apple juice. Uh, Bacardi Martini has a royal warrant. Mm. The company Britvic has a warrant. So no specific product, just Britvic as a business supply lots of different types of mixes and soft drinks to the households. Um, so you know I mentioned about... <laughs> um, environmental and sustainability kind of policies have to be in place interestingly um coca-cola and nestle are on the list (laughs) (laughs) royal warrants okay yeah (laughs) i think we can read between the lines there what you're saying about uh Mm -hmm. how the standards are enforced (laughs) yeah uh unsurprisingly has one Mm -hmm. only one sherry on the list and that was harvey's uh, only one natural mineral water on the list, and that was Hilden. Um, for tea, Twinings tea. Um, another soft drinks and mixers, Schweppes were on the list. Uh, Pims. Only one beer brewery I thought was quite interesting was on the list, and that was Windsor and Eaton Brewery. Um, yes, I've had Windsor and Eaton Brewery in Windsor and Eaton, um, and it was very nice. I, yeah. I predict we're going to see that change there. I think Charles is more into beer. I think we'll see some. But I was interested to see that when I went on their website, it was very gimmicky. It was almost mm-hmm. like the stuff that you'd want to see in, you know, a souvenir shop. It didn't feel oh, it, like... Oh, it absolutely works. is. It's tourist yeah. central there yeah. around that area, yeah. Mm, yeah, Windsor and Eton is just crawl- crawling with tourists hoping to spot royals and it's all <laughs> catered towards that. Yeah, perhaps it's a pity warrant. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, they're trying. Give them the warrant. H.R. <laughs> <laughs> um, Higgins Coffee Man Limited. I'd not heard of that one before, but I love a nice coffee, so I might look into that. Uh, champagne. So much champagne on the list. Basically, name any champagne and it's on the list. Moe, Verve, Bollinger, Laurent Perrier, they're all in there. Uh, whiskey, unsurprisingly... Um, there were a lot of whiskies on there. Uh, Johnny Walker, Royal Lochnagar. I'm going to say some of these wrong. <laughs> uh, Dewas. And the one that I always worry about saying it is Lepreuk. Lepreuk. Do you mean Do you mean Lepreuk? Lepreuk. There you go. Lepreuk whiskey. Port. There were two ports on the list. Taylor's and Graham's. Uh, gin, only two on the list. Gordon's and Juniper Green Organic Gin. Mm. There were a lot of wine merchants on the list. No wines on the list, just wine merchants. Uh, Berry Brow and Rudd, Corny and Barrow, Justerini and Brooks, Lee and Sanderman, Walker and Woodhouse. So if you want to get your Christmas lists into those guys, I'm just going to stick to Naked Wines myself. But Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, nothing you've mentioned isn't available in supermarkets. <laughs> so it's not... <laughs> um, I'm not I'm not necessarily slandering their quality, but what I would say is it's all quite middle of the road and very available. So I don't think you need to try too hard to get it on your Christmas list. Are uh, you calling the Royals basic? <laughs> yeah. 
last on the list is a vineyard. Uh, Camel Valley. So it's in the heart of Cornwall. They produce fine English sparkling wine. Um, so yeah, that was my quick sweep list of Royal Warrant oozes that you can buy at any good supermarket. Um, or any average supermarket, to be honest. Uh, yeah, Aldi's <laughs> works. <laughs> Apparently Aldi's is really good for booze, actually. It is good for booze, yeah. Um, let's get into the juicy bit. Can mm-hmm. you lose a Royal Warrant? I yes, would presume so. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you can. So if the quality of the product or service is not up to standard, or if it's no longer manufactured or available, if the goods or services are no longer required, or if orders have dwindled, business stops trading, the company goes into liquidation or declared bankrupt, or if there's a significant change in the control of ownership of the Royal Warrant Holding Company. That's what's happened most recently. Um, so they are normally, if they do have the warrant taken away, um, they're allowed up to 12 months to alter their packaging stationery or anywhere else that they've got the Royal Arms. Um, it's quite interesting. I did a lot of digging trying to find out, you know, who's lost them. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. they were saying between 20 to 40 of them um, lose them annually, which seems like a lot. Mm. Um, but again, I think it's more that goods or services are no longer required. I guess mm-hmm. you know, times are changing and all that. Um, but obviously, I did a lot of digging and found who has naughty corner found their way into getting stripped. <laughs> um, so I found a couple of examples that yeah deserve to be in the naughty corner, and it wasn't because their service is no longer manufactured or provided or needed. It was. They done messed up. Uh-oh. Um, one of them... So I mentioned that Charles um, did influence some aspects of it when Elizabeth was still on the throne. And that was a company, Gallagher. So they were the guys that made Benson and Hedges and silk-cut cigarettes. Um, they held a royal warrant of appointment for 122 years. Um, that warrant was revoked in 1999 by Queen Elizabeth II and it's kind of no coincidence that you know Charles had a rigorous anti-smoking campaign um, thought that he would have been a major influence behind that decision but also you know anyone who watches The Crown will know (laughs) that um, Elizabeth lost her dad to lung cancer so there's been a history in the family of of smoking related illness so that one was stripped in 1999 but on to the more juicy ones um volkswagen so in 2015 volkswagen had to drop its royal warrant um over an emissions cheating scandal uh they were forced to recall more than a million cars in britain um including 12 that were owned by the queen so that didn't go down too well and the warrant was dropped. Naughty Volkswagen. Um, Rigby and Pella. So that was the Queen's lingerie supplier. Uh, they were stripped of their royal warrant in 2018. Um, so they had the warrant for 57 years. Um, they did, you know, fittings for the Queen, Margaret, Diana, lots of the um, female royals. 
Um, but the former owner wrote a tell-all book called Storm in a D-Cup. <laughs> uh, she went into great detail about fittings with the Queen, Diana, Princess Margaret. Um, I think she just kind of got to that point where she was like, oh, sod it. She was 82 when she wrote the book and just thought, mm-hmm. yeah, whatever. Just did a tell-all book and it did not go down well with the royals. And they was, yeah, give us your warrant. Don't give a shit. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's a complete invasion of privacy, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. Why would you want someone who professionally touches your boobs to write a book about you? It's not odd, yeah. is it? Do you know what? I actually know someone who worked for that company at that time. And uh, they they told me all about it as well, and I'm like, I'm not. Don't they think I'm comfortable with that? Oh God! <laughs> so the whole company was at it, as far as I know. Bloody hell, naughty! But obviously, legally, they weren't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I have no information about royal boobs to impart. Oh damn it! Tell us about the boobs. No. Nope. Um, the last one, I'm not going to dwell on it too much because I think we all know a lot of the story. Um, Harrods, uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed ordered for his royal warrants to be taken down in 2010. So outside the Harrods store for a long time, they had these huge royal kind of crests that was the royal warrant appointment. They had a big deal of them slapped all around the place. Um, but he ordered them to be taken down. Um, he said they were a curse on the store. And controversially, in a documentary, um, he had them burned. The The documentary ended with him burning the royal warrant um, crests mm-hmm. that he had on the store. So, uh, yeah, some people love them, some people hate them. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> who'd, who'd think um, an unelected head of state would be divisive in any way? <laughs> so now we know what royal warrants are. I think we can move on and chat about some booze. I think it's going to probably... Yeah crop up in the bit of the conversations later i'm sure it will so I, I want to take us first of all to who i think as far as we know is probably the biggest royal boozer and that's henry the eighth um, at least as a monarch he by today's equivalent he spent an estimated six million pounds a year on booze oh, yeah. i mean that is going some isn't it <laughs> um <laughs> as as a sort of monument to this in 2010 um, his his home of Hampton Court Palace erected a wine fountain that would have been very similar to those that he used himself. Um, in 2008, there was an archaeological dig there that found the remains of a 16th century fountain. Um, and so it was sort of built as a replica of that. It was four metres tall, made of timber, lead, bronze and gold leaf. Um, and they, they put it on the excavated site. And at weekends, it ran with red and white wine uh, and on bank holidays, uh, which is carrying on the tradition of Henry VIII himself. And you can see a painting that they have there that's displayed at the palace called Field of the Cloth of Gold, which depicts this fountain in use. Uh, in, yeah, in use. It's Henry VIII meeting the French King Francis I. And there's these two large wine fountains that they're, um, they're standing around. Um, but it's, it wasn't just there. It's thought that wine fountains were present around London for various special occasions, like welcoming a new monarch, for example. Um, we know that at Anne Boleyn's coronation, the wine fountains were set up in Gracechurch Street in London, Cheapside, Fleet Street, 
Um, and similar similar facilities as well were installed for Queen Elizabeth I's coronation in Oxford and in Cambridge, so it wasn't just in London. Uh, the university colleges set up wine founding, fountains when the royalty were visiting. Um, the wine that they used in this replica was imported from Gascony, uh, which is the region that Henry was importing his wine from as well. Henry VIII had up to 15,000 gallons of wine in his cellar at Hampton Court at any one time. And um, to, to put it into perspective about how much that cost, I mean, I already said he spent six million a year, but ordinary wine at that time in relative terms was about three and a half times more expensive than it is now. So this was an incredibly expensive <laughs> cellar. Obviously, the common folk drank ale, if you were at all kind of aristocracy, they all drank expensive wine. So yeah, Henry VIII, top boozer. Yeah. Fountains of wine around London. I would like to see that returned, please. I was going to say, why didn't I have that at my wedding? <laughs> Fountains <laughs> of wine around Wales. <laughs> I think we all know why. Um, <laughs> Queen Victoria. Mm -hmm. uh, she is said to have liked a mix of whiskey and red wine together. In the mm -hmm. same glass, which is quite unusual. I don't know if that's any kind of official cocktail. Um, in a throwback as well, actually, to both the Peru and Buckfast episodes of recent times, she was particularly partial to, not, not Buckfast, but to uh, Van Mariani, <laughs> which is the drink made by Angelo Mariani, as I said before, steeping coca leaves in French uh, red wine for six months. So it had cocaine in it. Um, and, you know, inspiration for Coca-Cola, etc., uh, today, uh, the Van Mariani, it does still exist. It's made using uh, top Bordeaux, but then decocainized Peruvian coca leaf. I won't go into any more of that because I've had several episodes where I've sounded like I'm an absolute coke hound. Um, <laughs> and for the record, I'm not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this thing about um, whiskey and red wine, though, it's really well publicized, but I can only find one source for it which is a comment that came from the uh, Prime Minister, William Gladstone. So it's very possible that it was just a one-off, that maybe she was just sort of experimenting with a bit of whiskey and red wine because there aren't any other references to it um, and people seem to have latched onto that. But there are many, many more references about all the whiskies she enjoyed outside of mixing it with red wine. So I think it's more about her love of whiskey that she had it with red wine as opposed to that special cocktail. Mm -hmm. um, she gave out, as you mentioned, lots of royal warrants around the mid-19th century to whiskey makers. Uh, John Brown, who was her companion after Albert died and depicted in the film Mrs. Brown, if you've seen that, by Billy Connolly. He was a connoisseur of whiskey um, and always made sure that Queen Victoria was topped up, uh, whether it was um, in her morning tea or mixed with water while out on a hike, because apparently just fresh water would have been too cold. Mm. Um, so I always found ways to uh, sit more and more whiskey in, but he was obviously a Scotsman and he was um, very familiar with all the different varieties. Um, prior to her epic consumption of whiskey, it seems, um, as far as I can tell, it was thought a little bit disreputable outside of Scotland at least. So it seems as though she did quite a lot to raise the profile of whiskey drinking, both in its respectability and its worth. Um, I've got a little Cockney poem for you. Oh, get um, your best Cockney accent on, please. Yeah, I, I, this could be offensive. Um, 
it's it refers to widdy by the way meaning widow which is what the cockneys called her they called her the widdy um it goes i knew he was a liar what said the widdy was tt that's teetotal um for what she thinks she may require she takes like you and me her lord i this and lady that her housemaids and her flunkies too they knowed of course what she was at but kept it quiet the same as you then tt blokes have got a sell no doubt they'll make a bit of fuss because the witty fancies well a drop of scotch the same as us so they were yeah i like it they were basically going she's one of us she drinks whiskey like us we enjoy it it's okay the teetotal people need to just pipe down yeah yes they do so there we go before yeah yes yes they do um (laughs) before i go on to her successor i think you had some more um stuff on whiskey right did you want to kind of add on top of that or i went i really went down that rabbit rabbit hole um it wasn't just old what's her name the witty <laughs> <laughs> not just the witty who liked it the royals bloody love is scotch um i went back a little earlier actually to 1822 george the fourth uh so in 1822 scotch whiskey was a lawless edgy business it was pretty expensive to distill so uh Rather than do it properly, it was easier to take a chance, hide in the hills and make it illegally. <laughs> so there were a lot of people doing that. And King George, you know, being a king, didn't really care that it wasn't legal. He liked it. <laughs> so um, when he made his state visit to Edinburgh in 1822, he entrusted one Sir Walter Scott to lay on all the entertainment, including copious amounts of whiskey. Um, Glenlivet, that was the generic name given at the time to illicit whiskey. Um, the fact it wasn't strictly legal didn't bother him. <laughs> um, but how significant was the impact of that visit? Um, well, a year later, the Excise Act was passed by Parliament, effectively making the production of Scotch whiskey profitable. Uh, within another year, Glenlivet founder George Smith had gone legit. Um, within a decade smuggling had all but died out and the foundations were laid for today's scotch whiskey industry so thank you george the force for being an absolute party animal (laughs) Uh, which will move us nicely on to brackler whiskey so brackler in the highlands was the first scotch distillery issued with a royal warrant um, its owner, Captain William Fraser, he'd licensed the operation back in 1817, uh, but he wasn't a very popular man, uh, not overly keen on paying his taxes, and was of- often described as a tyrannical man, so not well liked, but however, he was a very determined and optimistic entrepreneur. And in partnership with a London based wine merchant, Henry Brett, he shipped consignments of whiskey down to the capital, making it one of the city's most popular drinks. Um, it's unknown really if it was that success in London or the fact that he did have a lot of friends in high places. Uh, by 1835, he was able to get the permission from King William IV to use the royal arms on everything connected with the distillery. Um, so he, being the kind of entrepreneur, he immediately rebranded it to Royal Brackler, and the bottles were soon being advertised in London newspapers as the King's Own Whiskey. 
and shortly after her accession to the throne in 1837, Queen Victoria renewed that warrant to confirm it's uh, one of Britain's best-known whiskies. Um, so as you said, Queen Victoria loved it. Uh, she also loved dishing out warrants. <laughs> she did a lot of it. Um, I think it was between 1893 and 1895 she awarded warrants to John Dewar and Sons, George Ballantyne and Sons, just kept drinking whiskey and dishing them out. I think she might have been a bit of an influencer, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, she um... absolutely was. If anyone was an influencer <laughs> in booze, it was her. I saw the number of warrants she passed out and was like, I'm not even going to describe them. um but i think my favorite story about her when i was reading into her was um when she bought balmoral um so there was a distillery that was built um so in 1848 she purchased balmoral balmoral estate that introduced her to john Begg, her new neighbor who conveniently owned a distillery (laughs) um so Mm -hmm. that was lochnagard distillery which still holds the royal warrant i think i mentioned it earlier um so that was built in 1843 so five years prior to her buying uh, balmoral estate uh, the distillery was bought so i think she probably bought the estate because it was opposite a distillery <laughs> knowing her knowing we all know now. how important it is when you're thinking about where you want to live that there is a good pub nearby exactly it's, that's the royal equivalent isn't it i would only buy this castle if it's opposite a distillery <laughs> But John, the owner of the distillery, being a good neighbour, does what any good neighbour does, invited her over. (laughs) Um, And literally the day after his invitation, he was probably surprised to find the Queen, Prince Albert and the three kids on his doorstep. (laughs) Ready for a distillery (laughs) tour. They brought Um, their own glasses, they were ready. Uh, so the family were given a, a dram of his make and they enjoyed it so much that it was quickly awarded a warrant, obviously, she loves it. Uh, so at the time, that was the third royal distillery that she'd uh, been given a warrant to. Uh, Johnny Walker is the next one on my list to talk about. That's taken us up to 1877 was when it was first registered as a trademark. Uh, but they had to wait until 1934 for a royal warrant, and that came from King George V, two years before his death. Um, to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the landmark, Johnny Walker, owned um, owned by Diego, they created a King George V blend made from distilleries operating during his 25-year reign. And it carried the Queen's royal seal on each bottle as well. Feels a bit late to the party, doesn't it? Like, you get given your royal warrant from King George the Fifth two years before he died in nineteen thirty four, and then you don't really do much with it until the seventy fifth anniversary of that. Mm. <laughs> um, but they do they've they've been doing a lot more recently. Um, so they've done a lot of commemorative royal whiskies. They did the Ben Royal, which was Queen Elizabeth the Second Silver Jubilee. Um, the Glenlivet 25-year-old royal wedding reserve for Prince Charles and Lady Diana's wedding. Um, the Macallan Coronation Collection, which was the Diamond Jubilee. Um, and they also did one for the wedding of William and Kate. So they've cashed in on it now. They've made up for lost time. Uh, the one that I can't pronounce, Lefroig. Well, you got it that time, but you've had Yay! you've had a couple of doozies in the meantime. All right, just kind you, of edit that on top of all the other. You doozies. were pretty sure you called Diana Diana, 
Um, oh. Yep. And you also, I think, called what I'm presuming is Diageo. You called Diego. Oh, gosh. Di- yeah, Diageo. <laughs> like the Mexican version of Diageo. Yeah. The Mexican arm of Diageo. <laughs> yeah. Diego. <laughs> I just, I really enjoyed them. I wasn't going to bring it up, but you started with Lefroy, and I'm like, okay, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm drinking tea as well. I know. This is why. I'm sure you've done this before. You had a week where you weren't on alcohol and it all went to pot. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I'm a high-functioning alcoholic, obviously. Mm. So, the Freud. Yeah. Um, no secret that King Charles enjoys a whiskey from time to time. But his favourite, without doubt, is the Freud. Um, in 1994, he visited the distillery and absolutely loved it um it might be that he was forced to spend more time there than planned and <laughs> um, so he flew himself there and he overshot the runway and knackered his plane <laughs> so what was supposed to be a quick visit to the distillery turned out to be a couple of hours because they had to get another plane or mode of transport sorted for him to to get back um so he ended up obviously having his planned distillery tour but he stayed and he had lunch with the owner and his wife um he met a lot of the the staff there and i think word got around that he was kind of stuck in the distillery and the wives of the staff were turning up and meeting him and he just loved it and they said he, you know they were really impressed with his knowledge of the whiskey and the questions that he was asking and he genuinely did seem to love it so uh he left with i think it was two kegs i read she he left with two barrels of whiskey and they were a bit like bloody hell that's a lot of whiskey but what he actually did was he bottled it and he signed it just charles and donated it to two different charities to raise money for auction um one was, I think, ex-soldiers and one was like a cancer charity. Um, one of them at the time, this was back in like obviously the 90s, one of them at the time broke records. I think it sold for £25,000 at auction um, wow. for one of the cancer charities. So yeah, good old Charles. That's well pretty there. cool. Mm. I would also quite like to be stranded at a distillery. Oh, but if that's an option he, he knew what in my life. bloody doing, Yeah. <laughs> um... So obviously the, the, the visit went down well and he issued them with a royal warrant and in turn they celebrated that by re- releasing a 10-year-old single malt aptly named the Royal Warrant. Um, Charles returned to the distillery in 2008 as part of his 60th birthday celebrations. Um, they gifted him with some very special bottles then. I think they were 30 years old. Um he does sometimes apparently share them with special friends, but quite rightly, he's keeping them for himself. It's <laughs> like, um, so I, I hide all the good stuff when you're around. <laughs> Give me the vinegar. <laughs> um, he visited again in 2015 to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the distillery. Um, the distillery also now does a special bottling um, for Highgrove with its own label, which is supplied not only for the prince's consumption, but also to guests and visitors to his Gloucestershire estate, where it can be bought in the Highgrove shop. Um, so that's a standard bottling. It's either a 10 or a 15 year old whiskey. Uh, only Charles gets the special 30 year old stuff. But that's definitely uh, the favourite whiskey and probably our king's going to 
keep that warren going mm. have you had it before i had it um i think it was last summer i had it for the first time it's very nice oh absolutely mm. yeah 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 of course i have yeah. <laughs> it, funny enough I, I i won't talk too much about it but i did lots of other bits of reading here and there and there, there's lots of like weird rules that the royal family have to um follow with regards to alcohol um like they're not allowed to drink at the garden parties that they have there um mm-hmm. i don't think that they're hard and fast rules it's generally they say that they're not really supposed to drink until after six o'clock but there's also rumors that the queen and queen mother used to enjoy a drink with lunch etc et well I, well <clears throat> you're crossing into my territory there sorry I won't i've got i've got some information on that okay you can myth bust if you need to. Um, but it is said that um, they they try and not to try not to drink in in public too much. Um, they will at you know social occasions they're allowed to drink at weddings, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally they try and like not get too pissed. Um, but there was a really funny story that I found um, how some journalists had managed to get in the hedges. <laughs> when Charles was on a hunt or something social and they managed to get footage of him drinking I think it was four shots or four good swigs of whiskey within about ten minutes of being there. <laughs> 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 he was just hammering the whiskey. So, yeah. Look, if you if you had to, you know, go to these events and be like, What is it you do? Oh how interesting. You'd do the same. Oh hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. I don't think I'd be able to do it with whiskey, though. If I was knocking back the whiskey, I wouldn't even be able to ask, what do you do? <laughs> That's the royal blood for you. <laughs> um, you done? I'm done, yeah. So I I left off on Victoria. I'm going to come to her successor immediately, who's King Edward VII, um, who only reigned from 1901 to 1910, um, but was renownedly a party animal, playboy type. He liked drinking, he liked tattoos, um, he particularly liked going for a ride in his Daimler. Um, and he would go out a lot in this, driving fast during bad weather, uh, which really stressed his doctors out. <laughs> and uh, what stressed them out about it was not, oh no, he might be drunk and driving a fast car in the rain. It was, what if he catches a chill though? So um, <laughs> they created a liqueur to keep him warm while he was Aww. driving. And thus was born the King's Ginger. Um, I, I have actually had this, drunk this on a podcast before and mentioned it because it's written on the bottle. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a ginger liqueur. It's absolutely delicious and it does keep you warm, but I wouldn't recommend it for driving. Mm, um, so that was created in 1903. Um, getting more recent times, uh, the Queen Mother. So you mentioned there are loads of champagnes on the warrant list, right? Mm. The Queen Mother was the highest spending private buyer of Verve Clicquot <laughs> in the world. It's my favourite champagne as well. I mean, just saying. <laughs> you are a Queen Mother indeed. Um, <laughs> So yeah, she was she was super into that. In the 1930s, she founded a little social club called the Windsor Wets. Oh my god, I love her. <laughs> Which was a high society drinking circle, and they had a very fancy motto, motto, aqua vitae non aqua pura, which means spirits not water. <laughs> oh my god. 
Yes, I want to do bottomless brunch with these girls. <laughs> um, so the Queen Elizabeth and and the Queen Mother both had um, a taste for alcohol. Both enjoyed it. They both um, had a preference for the drink of gin and Dubonnet mm. um, as a mix, which is three parts Dubonnet to seven parts gin, with <laughs> <laughs> with lemon no. and a lot of ice. Um, you said you went. You said, "Oh, they're not supposed to drink till after six pm or whatever." So, the Queen was said to have had one of those every day before lunch. I don't know what time lunch was, so I'm not saying it's yeah. the morning, but she did have a gin and bonnet before lunch, uh, which was one of four drinks uh, she reportedly uh, enjoyed daily. Uh, lunch was followed by a glass of wine and a dry gin martini. Uh, but then that was her done until bedtime. And she would have, you know, some people before bed have like a glass Paul of Licks. milk, Horlicks, <laughs> whatever. She had a glass of champagne before bed. Oh, what? The, yeah, this, I, I should be regal. <laughs> <laughs> so that those are apparently the four things that she would definitely have uh, daily. Um, I actually did see kind of a note, I think um, it was last only last year the doctors advised her that she should probably stop having her daily drinks um, due to her health. But then, you know, she died the next year, so <laughs> was it worth it? Was it worth no, giving it exactly. up? Exactly. Maybe Just... not. Once you hit that age, might as well keep going, right? Well, that's the thing. The, the Queen mum and Elizabeth, <clears throat> they lived to good ages. And if they lived to good ages on, you know, gin and dubai for breakfast and champagne for supper, <laughs> I'm in. Who are we to argue? Who are we to argue? <laughs> um, uh, just, uh, I've got another, there's there's a, <laughs> there's a note from the Queen Mother that was put up for auction in 2008, actually. And it was asking her aid to pack something for her. Um, so the note says... I think that I will take two small bottles of Dubonnet and gin with me this morning in case it is needed. <laughs> it simply said that and it sold for £16,000 at auction. Yeah. But you, I can tell you would buy that. Like if you saw that note, you'd be like, I'll put that on my wall. I wouldn't buy it. I respect it. <laughs> <laughs> it's your equivalent of live, laugh, love. <laughs> um... <laughs> So I don't think we've encountered Dubonnet before. Um, obviously, you want to know no. what Chin is. But I thought, Dubonnet, let's dig into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't know if like you noticed or remember this, but in September, it was sold out. <laughs> Dubonnet is this thing that like no one ever buys. And then people, curiosity came over us once we heard of the uh, you know the reports of Queen Elizabeth's death. And then the supermarket's like, no, all the Dubonnet's gone. <laughs> um, so it is a... It's a sweet, aromatised wine, uh, often enjoyed as an aperitif. It's also known as cankina, spelt with Q's. Um, and that's because one of its ingredients is quinine, coming from the chinchona, or Peruvian bark, which was imported by the Spanish in the 17th century from South America. So it's funny, we've got another throwback to um, a couple of episodes ago in Peru. So yes, uh, Peruvian quinine is in Dubonnet. Um, it also contains uh, a red wine base, um, which would be like Ruby Cabernet and uh, Muscat of Alexandria. Pretty fancy. 
Uh, it's got herbs and spices in it, including black currant and essence of tea uh, and some other ingredients. And it's also got 100% cane sugar in it as well. Um, these days it's made by Pernod Ricard in France at 14.8%. And it's also made in the US at 19% by a different supplier. Um, so despite being famous, I think, for quite a long time as Elizabeth II's favourite tipple, it was only awarded its royal, war royal warrant in November 2021. Hmm. I, I, given that that was pretty much when she was told to give up drinking it, I wonder if it was like a compensation. Yeah. Like, like, I'm, guys, I'm going to stop ordering, but before but, we stop ordering, have the warrant, it's going to last five years. Yeah, That's a good exactly. idea. That's yeah. my theory. Um, it was first sold in 1846 by Joseph de Bonnet, and this was in response to a competition that was run by the French government to find a way of persuading French foreign legionnaires in North Africa to drink quinine. As we know, quinine by itself is extremely bitter, so that's when you get um, all of these sorts of drinks around that period, mid-19th century, when uh, the French are in North Africa of all these quinine-based drinks to try and make them have it, because quinine combats malaria. Hmm. Um, it has some fun advertising moments as well. Uh, there's one from 1907 that pictures Napoleon and Madame de Pompadour sharing a bottle of Dubonnet, and there's a caption that says, um, My dear Marchioness, you must be perished with the cold. Do pray alight from your carriage and take a glass of Dubonnet. If at the time I had but had a few thousand bottles, my retreat from Russia would have been metamorphosed into a triumphal procession. Um, this is obviously, um, uh, you know, not true. Um, it's, it, <laughs> that's because the scene that they're playing out is actually during Fat Tuesday, uh, which is carnival. So they're mm -hmm. dressed up at these characters, enjoying the drinks and just pretending they're these... Um, historical people. Uh, Dubonnet is also widely known by its slogan Dubo, Dubon, Dubonnet, which in French is a play on words which pretty much means it's nice, it's good, it's Dubonnet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I've also got a little ad here uh, that I'm looking at the writing's quite small. It says, no appetite, three question marks, then take a glass of Dubonnet. The world's greatest tonic and appetizer, superior to the best cocktail. Important, the original and genuine Dubonnet has a cat on the label as its trademark. Refuse others with contempt as spurious imitations. Wow. I love how aggressive that, <laughs> that advert is. The cat, by the way, that's their, that is their trademark, was uh, Dubonnet's wife's cat. She had a cat she loved. It's gone on the trademark. <laughs> Uh, do you want to know a bit about Gordon's? Yes, I love Gordon's. Because he said that has a royal warrant and it is the the, the favourite gin of the Queen that she would have mixed with the Dubonnet. Mm -hmm. So it is the world's best-selling uh, London dry gin. And it's been the UK's number one gin since the late 19th century, which is really quite a legacy. Um, Gordon's London dry gin was developed by Alexander Gordon, who was a Londoner but of Scots descent. And he opened a distillery in my neighbourhood, in Southwark, um, in 1769. And then it moved over to Clerkenwell in 1786. So the special London dry gin that he developed was um, very successful. And in fact, its recipe hasn't changed since it was first created. 
Uh, it's triple distilled. It's flavoured with juniper berries, coriander seeds, angelica root, licorice, orris root, orange, and lemon peel. Uh, although obviously the exact recipe and amounts has been a secret since it was created. Um, so it, it differed a lot at the time that it was created from others because it didn't add any sugar. That's what makes it a dry gin. They didn't put any sugar in. And as we've discussed, although a long time ago, people were making really bad gins and then just loading them with sugar. And that's how it got a bad reputation because um, people were hungover in all sorts of ways from the terrible things it did. But it wasn't because it's a gin. It's because it was just full of awful things. Um, the distinctive square-faced green bottle that it has was introduced in 1904. Um, although that's only for the UK. Because in export markets, it's actually sold in a clear bottle. doesn't look like Gordon's at all. It's very old. Hmm. Uh, in 1925, it was awarded its first royal warrant by King George V. And uh, in 1998, its production was moved to Fife in Scotland, where it remains now. So it's kind of like, although it was founded in London, it was by someone of Scots descent. So it's kind of gone home in a way. Um on the label of Gordon's Gin, you may have noticed before, you may have not, it depicts a wild boar. And that is because, according to legend, a member of Clan Gordon saved the King of Scotland from a boar while hunting. That's where that story comes from. Um, the strength of it as well varies depending on um, the export markets you're in. In the US it's 40% and it was in the UK until 1992 when it changed to a more UK gin standard of 37.5. But if you want the strong stuff, then you go to Europe because in Europe, Gordon's gin is for 47.3%. Woo! However, we just can't be trusted, can we? <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, in addition to being the Queen's favourite, Gordon's gin... Um, is specified by name in the recipe for the Vesper cocktail. Do you remember what that's from? Nope. <laughs> Mesopotamia? <laughs> <laughs> Not Mesopotamia. Uh, James Bond. Uh... So in Ian Fleming's novel Casino Royale of 1953, James Bond specifically orders the Vesper cocktail, um, which, as we know, is uh, shaken and not stirred, but it was specifically a Gordon's gin. Um... And also, who else do you think I'm going to say liked Gordon's? If I could pick any famous person. Um... This is the human equivalent of Mesopotamia. Oh, God. <laughs> Me? <laughs> <laughs> Close. Ernest Hemingway. Oh. <laughs> you know, we always say, oh, that's Hemingway enjoyed this. And it's like, that isn't an endorsement. He enjoyed everything. <laughs> um, bleach. <laughs> yeah. But he did specifically say about Gordon's, um, it could fortify, mollify and cauterize practically all internal and external injuries. <laughs> exactly what you want from a drink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, what else have we got? According to an eyewitness account by Jack Thayer, um, in the book A Night to Remember, which was about um, the the Titanic um, accident. Um, a passenger drained a whole bottle of Gordon's gin when they, th they thought they were going to die because the ship was sinking uh, in April of 1912. Uh, but they survived. <laughs> <laughs> but dying of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> their, their eyewitness account was, I really don't know, I was pissed the whole time. <laughs> 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 you imagine? 
Mm. Can you imagine someone asking you about it? Like, what was it like? I have no idea. Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) I dragged through the whole experience. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you were supposed to have one good story and that was it. (laughs) You got anything else on gin before I move on to something else? I have. Um, Mm. So, do you know, like, in COVID, during lockdown, we all, you know, we all kind of found ourselves either making banana bread or just just doing weird shit that you wouldn't normally do. Same for the staff at Buckingham Palace. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They made a gin. Oh, nice. Uh, The official Buckingham Palace gin. It went on sale to the public in 2020 and the first batch actually sold out in eight hours. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, Buckingham Palace gin. It's a small batch London dry gin. Um, an initiative of the Royal Collection Trust. Um, it's infused with citrus and herbal notes that are derived from 12 botanicals, some of which were collected from the Buckingham Palace Garden itself. Hmm. Uh, lemon verbena, hawthorn berries, bay leaves and mulberry leaves. Some of those botanicals used. Um, you can still buy it. It did um, appear in, in Waitrose for a short while but it sold out quite quickly there but you can still buy it on the royal collection trust website it's 40 pounds a bottle um and obviously the queen doesn't make it and she doesn't get kickback from it she doesn't get any money it's uh, a privately funded charity the royal collection trust Mm. um so it's art artifacts furnishings and kind of lots of collections um with royal connotations around europe so it all goes back into preserving that. That actually sounds um, delicious and mm-hmm. not too overpriced. Yeah, not too bad. Mm. Um, I did also, as well as the gin, just you were talking earlier about um, preferences of the Queen Mother and the Queen. I did look into it. And like you say, it's it's hard to get like hard and fast kind of facts. A lot of it is like anecdotal stuff and... He said, said this, and so and so once in a passing comment said that. Um, but I did find some quite interesting uh, stories um, that I just thought you might enjoy. Kate Middleton obviously enjoyed her uni days with William, and it's said that her and her friends used to regularly order a drink on nights out in a nightclub um, bougie. Uh, the drink was called Crack Baby. <laughs> and it's a signature cocktail from the bar and it combines vodka raspberry liquor passion fruit and champagne crack baby i don't believe that that doesn't come with a side of crack (laughs) i was going to maybe make a crack baby but then i thought i can't be asked to like one make it and two have to explain right at the start of the podcast why am i drinking something called a crack baby and how do i know about this so, yeah, and also you probably yeah. you'd probably need to get Chris's consent as well. Yeah, your husband your husband's consent for making yeah. a crack baby. And I'd have to find some crack. Um, Meghan Markle. Don't really know too much about what she drinks, but she did used to have a lifestyle blog, um, and it was called the Tig, which is apparently a shorter way to pronounce her favorite wine, an Italian blended red wine, Tignanello. So she's fond of that. Um, Camilla, also a wild wine connoisseur. Um, she once claimed that she was brought up as a child drinking wine and water, rather like the French. 
Um, she serves as president of the UK's Vineyard Association. So mm. I take the word for it. Found an amazing story about Diana. Um, Diana. <laughs> um, her friend Cleo Ruckel um, told The Independent um, that she really loved peach bellinis. She said, I have fantastic memories of drinking with her. She'd regularly sneak out on her own in disguise and go to places around the corner from the palace. I remember drinking peach bellinis with her and Freddie Mercury at the Bombay Brasserie nearby before we went up to the penthouse to continue drinking. I'll never forget watching her and Freddie dancing around the lounge to Gypsy Kings, each waving feather dusters in the air. Diana, Diana used to go to the Royal Vauxhall Tavern quite a lot, actually. She used to dress up in disguise until she got to the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, and uh, which is uh, the gay bar in Vauxhall, mm. and uh, like be at the cabaret nights and stuff, yeah. Uh, I thought I'd finish on that because I just thought, yeah, imagine drinking peach bellinis. Not so much peach, because you know I don't like peach, but sure. I would like to drink cocktails with Freddie Mercury dancing around to Gypsy Kings, please. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see what we can do. Uh, put it on spreadsheet. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> yeah, put on spreadsheet, absolutely. Um... So I thought we'd close with something about pub names. Now, we are actually doing an episode entirely on pub names mm. coming up sort of in the new year, probably, I think. Um, but I thought, it's a big subject. Let's do the royal ones now. So I got this data from the Food Standards Agency because I love to spend my time on the Food Standards Agency website. <laughs> um, <laughs> so can you, can you guess who has the most pubs named after them? Which monarch? <sighs> Oh, I'm trying to think. There's a lot of William pubs. William, I think it's going to be a bloke. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say William. I know a lot of pubs named after Williams. Which William? The first. <laughs> Great. So, um, William the Fourth has 62 uh, UK pubs named after him. Mm-hmm. Uh, which puts him in second place. First place with 222 pubs is Queen Victoria. Ah, oh, of course, the Queen You should have been thinking EastEnders. Yeah. That's, got, that's one of them. That's where you end um, the podcast and put the EastEnders music on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Do, 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 do. Um, yeah, so Queen Vic, um, 222 of those. Uh, yeah, William IV, um, who was her predecessor, comes next. And mm-hmm. third place goes to George the Third, who has fifty pubs named after him. Um, there's there's a really fun Battle of Hastings thing going on with pub names, because William the Conqueror obviously fought um, Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Hastings. Hastings, William the Conqueror has two pubs named after him, and Harold Godwinson only one. <laughs> Still battling. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Also, um, one pub named after the first king of the English, Athelstan. Mm-hmm. That's in Bournemouth. Um, so I thought about the Shakespeare um, kings as well, because you'd think being popularised by Shakespeare plays would give you a bit more of an advantage in having a pub mm. named after you. Henry V, I think, is probably one of his more famous king plays. Not one single pub named after Henry V. I that really surprised me. Yeah. And the only other one from his um, history plays that doesn't technically have it, well, sort of doesn't have a pub named after him, is Richard II. 
But Richard II's heraldic symbol is the White Heart, which, as we know, is quite a common pub name. Ah, it is. So he sort of does have a lot named after him. So it's a bit weird, really, that Henry V doesn't. Um, Some others that have missed out on having a pub named after them, Edward VIII, which I think is kind of predictable, given that, um, you know, he wasn't around for very long. He abdicated. um, He was shipped off to America. He was friends with Adolf Hitler. You know, who's going to want to name a pub after Edward VIII? <laughs> I was um, going to say, no one's calling the pub Prince Andrew, are they? Well, no. <laughs> and actually, um, Elizabeth II doesn't have a pub named after her yet. But I would imagine that's going to change. Good, that, um, get that on the uh, spreadsheet. Let's get in there first. Yeah, well, we could be the first to open an Elizabeth II pub. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Put it down, put it down. Um... There are a few pubs, well, there are lots of pubs named in honour of monarchs, but not using their name. So, for example, you might, you've got quite a few, the Royal Oaks. And yes. that refers to, well, at the time Prince Charles, he then became Charles II. Um, when he was um, running away, trying to escape um, because of the Civil War and the Interregnum, and he hid up a tree in Shropshire to escape the parliamentarians after the Battle of Worcester in 1651. So when you get the Royal Oak, that's what it's named after. The, yeah. uh, the oak in Shropshire that he hid in. Um, the King's Head? <laughs> what do you think? Why do you think um, the King's Head would be a name for a pub? Is it something to do with it being on the currency and the stamps oh. and whatnot? I thought you were going to say because there were no complaints. God uh, damn it. So what a lot of people think is it's because it was named after Charles I's decapitation. So obviously Charles I was executed, which is why Charles II was hiding up a tree. Um, and a lot of people think that, yeah, the king's head was sort of named after that. But it's, it's actually not because it became a common pub name after Henry VIII's Reformation rift with Rome, which was a long time before. Um, and that's because the pub, the pubs used to be called the Pope's Head. So it used to be in honour of the Pope and, you know, his, his mitre and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But after the Reformation, they renamed it the King's Head. So it's actually nothing to do with decapitation. It's weird that it's kind of Henry VIII that brought that around, though, because he's the most well-known one for chopping people's heads off. Well, yeah, quite, exactly, yeah. Um, Both Charles I and II, I mentioned, they do have three pubs each. Um, And there is one, I think, that's named after Oliver Cromwell, who was um, responsible for their rift. Um, That's in Cambridgeshire. So there you go, a few royal um, pubs for you. Lots of pubs in Wales called the Prince of Wales, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Yeah, which is not necessarily after a specific Prince of Wales, is it? Because no. it's, a, it's a role rather than a specific person. Of course, person. it's handy for not having to rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite so. Uh, that's all I've got for you today. Else I enjoyed you? that. Bit of history, history. Mm-hmm. Are we done? <laughs> I'm done, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so done. And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to replace it with a drink that was born into that position. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>
happy with that. I that was pretty light. I wrote a much more offensive version before I cut it down to that. It's all <laughs> it my best a, behavior. It was a full five minute lecture on privilege. Um, I thought we behaved ourselves quite well, to be honest. I didn't I say think... sweaty nonce once. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 zero acts of treason. 